Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. One of my favorite all-time baseball heroes is Nolan Ryan. Played for the Mets, Angels, Astros, and Rangers. Really, it's the last two teams that I recollect the most. Career ERA of 3.19, 5,714 strikeouts. He's the all-time leader with seven no-hitters. Probably the thing that he's most remembered for is a seven-hitter that he pitched when Robin Ventura unfortunately decided to challenge being hit by a pitch and subsequently wound up in Nolan's headlock and Nolan punched him in the face seven times. Reggie Jackson says of Nolan Ryan, he's, Nolan Ryan is the only guy who puts fear in me, not because he could get me out, but because he could kill me. You just hope to mix in a walk so you could have a good night and go 0 for 3. I've been a long-time Ranger fan, longer time, well, as long a time, even when he played for the Astros, Nolan Ryan fan. So when Nolan came to pitch for the Rangers, it was just sweetness for me, and, uh, of course, as a Ranger fan back in the day, you picked anything and everything you claw and scratch after to cheer for. Well, on one occasion, I believe I was home from perhaps my first year at Baylor and had gone to a TGI Fridays in Arlington, saw Nolan Ryan in the restaurant, decided I've got to get his autograph. Um, I had already in, um, actually, I had not yet, I, I'd received... Uh, another autograph by that time, if I remember, I'll tell you another story when I, when I followed Roger Clemens into the bathroom to get his, rest, uh, his autograph, but that was really awkward. So, but Nolan Ryan, this actually was the most intimidating experience I've ever had in my life, at least as far as meeting an individual um, on this earth. Um, I sent a note via my waiter because I didn't want to make a scene, and so I just said, in fact, this note along with a playing card of his, uh, and this note is actually signed, so the story turns out good. But nonetheless, it, it is framed in my office uh, upstairs. And um, I said on there, I don't want to make a scene. Uh, I've been a longtime fan. I would love to have your autograph. God bless, Mike. So I sent that via my waiter because I didn't want to make a scene. I mean, I figured, I mean, we're in Arlington, and we're at a large restaurant, and so I just was fearful of other people making a big scene. And I didn't want to mess with his dinner either, so... Well, the waiter comes back, and, and he says, Mr. Ryan asked me to give you this. And so he handed me the note back, and it's unsigned. And I said, what happened? And he said, Mr. Ryan says that if you want his autograph, you're going to have to ask him personally. So in all of my, I mean, so as surely as, as you're a freshman in college, just thinking that at 19, you've got all kinds of things figured out. Um, whatever tail I had was tucked between my legs. But I still get up. Why? Because my pride is even greater because the table I'm sitting at with other guys just says that I have to now stand up and I have to go ask for his autograph. And so I did. And I mean, in my best eight-year-old voice, Mr. Ryan, please, sir. It was pathetic, full of patheticness. Um, probably not a word, but anyway. Um, and as I go over to him, he says, he says, son, you're going to have to ask me nicely. So I said, okay. And so but, but firmly. And so I did. I tried my best to do both. And he graciously then signed it. And, and I went on. And I mean, I was just 
heart rate was high. I sat down, probably couldn't eat. And it was an intimidating experience. Um, Nolan is, is, is just a huge, iconic figure in the world of sports, particularly for baseball fans. And really, he honestly does have a very intimidating persona anyway. So it's not just a veneer. It's who he is. And um, I, I was just actually thinking about that experience this morning because when you, when you look at our account and you read in Matthew chapter 4 and you, and you skip down to the very last verse that we're going to look at in this passage, verse 17. Okay, look at verse 17. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ is alive. And his word is living. And we are not to fear the one who can just destroy the body, even as the scriptures speak of even fearing Satan. But we're to actually have a fear for the one who can destroy both body and soul. God is to be feared. He is to be reckoned with. So Jesus Christ, ever-present, really here, right now, living and breathing, way more intimidating than Nolan Ryan, says with an imperative voice, a command, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what are you going to do? God, I pray that you would help us to see you as not some, we wouldn't dare say mythological figure, but on a practical basis, we treat you as if you're just a really great big historical idea. And you've left us with some really great ethical and moral principles. But you are the living God, fully human, fully divine. Christ, you are our Lord. You have been born. You have lived. You have died. You have been buried. You have been raised. You have ascended. You sit at the right hand of the Father interceding. You are ever-present. And your word is no less alive because it has your words. Everything that you would ever want us to have heard you say is in this text. And we are challenged today with a very simple, pronounced command. Not a question, not a suggestion, not even imploring us. You simply command, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God, what will we do? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower obedience to this command today, that we would be disciples who have been taught and we have observed what we have been taught. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, let's go back to verse 12 and see how this begins. Here's what he says. Right on the heels of the account of Christ being baptized and then in that 40-day experience of temptation at the hands of the evil one, Satan, it says now in verse 12, when he heard that John had been arrested, this is John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel, 
begins his public ministry here. This is after the inauguration of his public ministry at baptism, after the initial preparation for his ministry, being an incredibly sympathetic Savior for us in having been tempted to the fullest and yet without sin. Jesus begins his public ministry and mission. We see in this text very simply a twofold outline, if you will. We see that he is the Messiah to the world. We also see that he has a message to the world. Messiah and message. Just remember those two words. I want us to first look at how he is the Messiah to the world. And I think you see this pretty clearly if you just simply take your time in reading the text in 12 through 16. First of all, this is upon the forerunner, John the Baptist's arrest. Okay, and then eventually dies. Remember, John says, I must decrease so that, and Christ must increase. John knew his role. His role was to be a forerunner for Christ the Messiah. And he also knew that that was going to be a consistent forerunning, meaning that's what John preached. John preached, repent, repent. And if you remember, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was teaching this idea, this truth, this fact, this gospel of repentance before Christ even came on the scene. This was his legacy. Repent and be baptized. Increasingly, there's public unrest for that message because it was causing disruption among the the Jews. Christ does not discount that disruption. In fact, he begins to just give it greater specificity and clarification. He begins to expound upon what is the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. And what does it look like to then repent? I mean, basically, guys, this message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is what is then clarified and explained and exemplified from this point on in Christ's ministry. Every parable, everything that he addresses at the Sermon on the Mount is to give clarity, explanation, and exemplification to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew's gospel does a beautiful job of helping us see how that is the central preaching truth of the Christ because what does he go right into next? What, were, what are we going to look into? We'll take a, a brief break when we finish with chapter 4. But beginning in chapter 5, we start to see the Sermon on the Mount discourse through chapter 7. We see the Beatitudes. Guys, if you isolate what is spoken of in the Beatitudes, you will actually think that if you can just but modify your behavior, you can look and smell, maybe even taste like Jesus. This all is on the heels of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what people of the kingdom look like. This is what they sound like. This is what they smell like. This is what they do. And it demands repentance away from the kingdoms of men to the kingdom of heaven. And it is imperative that we understand how this is the central message that he proclaims and exemplifies and, 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 and uh, explicates through the rest of his ministry. On the forerunner's arrest, as he is decreasing in publicity, literally, John the Baptist, Christ is increasing in taking that same message because God gives it. And that message is fulfilled in the Christ. And he goes on from there. And you see, actually, in all this, there is danger even from the beginning. There is unrest. There is disruption. There was never a time when ministry was easy. It was already disruptive at the ministry of John the Baptist, and now it's going to be so with Christ. But it's not just among the Jewish elite. 
Because look at what he says. He withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. It's a place of great transit. Okay? It's a place of great trade. It was a place known to be a place of the Gentiles. In fact, he says, quoting Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, how this is a fulfillment of what the Scriptures have to say about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee, what's the prepositional phrase? Of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. He has positioned himself for both Jew and Gentile, saying he is the Jewish Messiah who is the Savior of the whole world. Remember, Matthew's intent in preaching and teaching is particularly gauged toward the Jewish community to understand how the Old Testament Scriptures, which they held to, this being the first quote from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. It's the fifth quote, however, or phrase that says, fulfilling what the Scriptures have to say. There's ten of these quotes in, in Matthew. This is the fifth of them, halfway through, and it's the first one of Isaiah. He is firmly saying, this is the Christ that's been spoken of in the Scriptures. And yet again, he fulfills exactly what's being said. But it's not just that he is using it as, as a factual support. It's what the Scriptures have to say about him that's also just as important. Not just that it says this is the Christ, but what does it say about the Christ? It says that he's going to come and be among the Gentiles. That he's going to come and be the light to the world. Jewish and Gentile community. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 4, 14 and 15, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And what did he teach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To Capernaum, Zebulun, Nephthalim. We have the specifics because this is the scriptures being fulfilled. Now I want you to understand about something here though. The language about the Scriptures being fulfilled is not that Christ thought of Isaiah and then decided to go ahead and move then to this land of Capernaum. What you get here basically is that the language is simply that the Scriptures were fulfilled in what Christ did. Now you could say, why does it matter? It matters because we too often have this very human, or at least a more human-ish, a way of approaching the sovereignty of God. He's not just being kind of this divine Nostradamus that if you just throw out enough quotes and enough futuristic sayings, eventually you're going to hit a few. Like a land in the Middle East is going to be very much disrupted by a force from the north. Yeah, like a thousand times in the last 2,000 years. Thank you, Nostradamus, for being so specific. No, Christ is the Christ of Scripture. In fact... He is, as John Calvin says, the very speech of God. There is no separation between what Christ does and the Scriptures themselves being alive, representing who Christ is. There is too much of a divide, even in churches in the West today, that says, oh, let's follow the living Word, who is Jesus, but 
And let's not give too much. Let's make sure we follow the living word as opposed to the written word. What have we said a thousand times from this pulpit? But the word also says of itself, it is alive. It is living and active. We don't worship the paper. But the very words on the paper show the very words of life. Who is the Christ? We do not separate the revelation of who Jesus is as it is revealed in the scripture. That's why we have to have a high view of scripture. Because Christ is the yes of it all. We must know the scripture to know Christ. If you claim to know him experientially apart from the word, it is a version of Christ that looks an awful lot like you that you are getting to know, not the Christ of scripture. Be careful. He, in fulfilling the scripture, has become light to the Gentiles. Exactly what Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 says is, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. From gloom to glorious, from darkness to light. And the only difference is Christ. Christ begins his public ministry in preaching from the land of the nations, the Gentiles. He is the light of the world. Ephesians 3, 4 through 6 says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Listen. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation for any and all ta-ethne, any ethnic group on the face of the planet. Christ is the only provision from God to be saved. There is no other. He is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is the one that God has promised all the way back from Genesis 3.15. And even in his own mind and heart, even before the foundations of the earth, to redeem some people to make for his own. And he has chosen to do so from all the nations, Gentile and Jew alike. Why is this important from Matthew's perspective? Well, he's, he's speaking to the Jewish community. But you know what? Part of the mystery is that they're not just in because of their ethnic association with Jesus. He says they're become partakers. Why? From the gospel, through the gospel. The mystery is not only that the Gentiles are also included in this promise. It's that in order for the Jews to be included in this promise, they also must understand and repent and be saved. They're not just naturally born into it. You and I don't get to just go back through our history and somehow claw and scratch and see if we can somehow find some Jewish blood in our veins. Think that we're fine. Much less grandmama or your mother and all her sweet prayers. The only way for anyone from any and all of the nations is to repent from all of the kingdoms of men and to go after only the kingdom of heaven through the person of Jesus Christ. 
He cannot be added to other kingdoms. He cannot be added to other kings. It is exclusive. It is only Christ. And you also must forsake all other loves and lovers and say, Christ, your kingdom and yours alone. I turn from what I see in this world to what I don't see that's more real to me now, which is Christ, the hope of glory. He's your only hope. He is the Messiah to the world. He goes intentionally to this place, fulfilling the Scriptures, but also then proclaiming from this place to to be light to the land of the Gentiles so that the whole world knows that everyone from every place is to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is indeed the message that He gives us. As being Messiah to the world, He takes a message to the world. See, Jesus is indeed the light, and He shines His light to the world, but He shines it through words. Guys, if you put all of Christ's deeds and all of His parables through the filter of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you'll have a lot easier time seeing a consistency in the redemptive story of even Christ's work. Because then you understand that He doesn't just heal to heal. He doesn't just say, hey, don't stone the woman caught in adultery because when he turns to her and says, go and sin no more, he is preaching the message of the kingdom. The beauty of it is that he loves even just the one as vile as she was to society. And it is this message that goes forth. It began most specifically through John the Baptist's ministry and he continues it. This message essentially remains the same, but the details are unfolding as time goes on. As he explains himself, as he gives us pictures of what it looks like, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. John the Apostle helps explain that in his gospel. Oh, when he was resurrected, they understood. They put two and two together. We have the whole story. I know you have questions. I know you've had some tragedies in your life where you do not understand why, God, why. But your biggest question, at the end of the day, even in light of tragedies, and we should pray for those in the Philippines as they look at incredible tragedies of typhoons that may get upwards of tens of thousands of lost lives. I've been praying for Vietnam as it's a place that Jan and I have loved and been a part of for a long time. Praying for them. These people don't have a lot of margin for safety. I don't understand. But I do understand that everyone deserves death. And what I don't understand is why he would show mercy to anybody. Why me? That is a bigger question than why 10,000 would die at the wave of a typhoon. It is why not, God, another, why not just another flood? We have profaned your name. This is the message. Faith is always born by the Word. It's always enabled by the Spirit. His Messiahship to deliver the world from their sin demands a message. And the role of the Messiah is to reconcile sinful men to a holy God. The means of this reconciliation was that the Messiah would do so by His righteous living because we cannot, by His unjust suffering because He doesn't deserve it, but we do. 
by his death, which we deserve, by his burial, which we do not deserve to be resurrected from. But he is resurrected so that there is then no other message, there's no other story, and there is no other means of salvation apart from Christ alone to save any of us. And then he ascends to intercede for us? Are you kidding? He is our priest. I scoff at any other human means, any other mediary between me and God because there is my Christ. We have God, we have man, we have Christ, and we have a response. Why? Because God is holy and perfect. Man is, is sinful and justly deserving of Execution. Christ has been executed unjustly for man and it demands a response. This message of reconciliation is preached and it demands a response. Why? Because the demons can believe that all men need this and that Christ is all sufficient, but they never repent and are saved. Only the truly redeemed say, I repent. Because you're unable to. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look back at Matthew 3, 2. This is what John preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does he say, though? I just want you to see the first five words. For this is he who. It's not in your ability to repent. Only Christ can enable One of my dear friends from a church plant that we were in, probably one of the closest things we had to an elder, he had been saved. Brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, I need to finish that thought because if you're going to be an elder, you do need to be saved. But brilliant guy. um, had I I can't imagine what he'd be like if he'd not fried so many brain cells on drugs for so many years. he was the head of the IT department at the University of North Texas. He was a highly functional drug addict. In night school, he decided to just become a lawyer in his spare time and was in top of his class and just a brilliant mind. His wife to this day has remained unsaved, and yet she saw his conversion. She saw him go from this brilliant guy who did take care of her son but was really leveraging all of their resources to buy drugs, just having enough to get by. She saw his life change. She saw him begun to serve her with everything that he had. She saw him get off drugs and become a person of great happy joy over and over and over again. And yet his wife would not accept the Jesus that had resurrected her husband. And it was so plain. This was not like so many of us disdain our boring testimonies. Look, they're all resurrection testimonies, so who cares how dead you were? But in this occasion, even to the lost, it's just a miraculous sign. She still kept saying no to Jesus. And to my knowledge, still to this day, says no. There's nothing before human eyes that can cause a person to say, I repent. In fact, this same beloved brother, John, he hated, I shouldn't say hated, but he really didn't like me preaching repentance too much. It sounded too much like work. You can understand, this guy was like Martin Luther. He basically had had a lightning bolt hit him, and he just was so much about grace. Anything that sounded like something we did, he just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Fortunately, he loved the Reformation enough that I could rebuke him with Martin Luther, even if the Scriptures didn't do it for a moment. And he began to say, okay, I get it, repentance, it's fine. Because he had done it himself. But truly, he understands that only enabled by the Spirit of God can anyone say yes to the Lord and turn away from the world. 
That is what Christ says. Christ says it. He demands obedience. And if you obey, you can know that he has accomplished it in you. So if you're a seeker, if you're lost, if you're an unbeliever even today here, and you have in you a desire to go after him and a true desire to turn away from this world and follow him, not just because you think it might make this world better, but because regardless of what happens to you, you want this Jesus who is so beautiful and willing to forgive you, you can know without a doubt that is not your flesh. That is not Satan. That is only the Spirit of God who's awakening in you something. Say yes to him today. The mode and the message marks everything else that Christ says and does in this book. We've already said that. Salvation has never been about works. But salvation does have an outworking. That outworking is always obedience. That's why baptism is so beautiful. Even if you don't know anything else about the person, when you hear the word of their testimony and you see the action of their being baptized publicly before men, you know that there is in that picture repentance. I want to die to the world. I want to be raised to his kingdom. I repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? Well, repentance, first of all, means a change of mind and heart. Guys, you need to understand something. It's a command. It's an imperative. Every single time it is preached, it is an imperative. That is why it should be shame on us in the Western church when we treat Jesus like he is some wimpy, sad little girlfriend looking out the window and it's raining and there's a music video going in the background or something and some sappy guy playing at the piano in his jeans and his denim shirt and his jeans are rolled up and he's barefooted on a beach. Okay, could it get more cheesy than that? And it's a soft music and he's just looking and saying, won't you come please, will you? Question mark. Jesus has never been a wimpy girlfriend. He's never done anything that's pined after. He only commands. He tells demons to flee. He tells the dead to be raised. And he tells you to repent. And he will enable you to get up off that slab like Lazarus did and stand there with all your stink. But because Jesus is there, you say, I don't care. I want him. That's what he does for you. And he commands it. He doesn't just woo you. He awakens you. He lights a fire in you. That's what he does. Because that's who he is. He is the creator and he's the recreator. He doesn't need to manipulate. He creates from nothing, from ex nihilo, from nothingness, just like this world. And he makes in you, though you have nothing to offer, he makes into you an heir, a child. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance, this change of mind, it is a 180 degree turn. Going this way in the world, love the world, love its kingdoms. I want more of that. You can even be religious. You want Jesus' principles to help make this world better. No, but then you realize, but it's not about this. It's about Christ. So this is where repentance and faith go together. You're trusting in a kingdom you see and you want it, but repentance brings you to then turn away from the world you see to what you don't see, which is faith, which is Christ. I want Him. Hey, We all desire the blessings that we may have in this world. But to be saved, we understand that he has saved us to make us heirs of his kingdom. Which upon salvation, we immediately cease to become citizens of this world. And we're now aliens and strangers. And we're now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And guess what? That's not fully realized either until you die or until he comes. So you're still waiting. So don't try to make this world a Jesus version of heaven because it will never be.
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This idea of at hand shows the eminence of his reign. Matthew speaks of the now and not yet of kingdom. It's now because Christ has come. We also know that there is an inauguration of that kingdom at Pentecost because he quotes Joel. He says, and in that day, on that day, which represents the day of judgment or the day of the kingdom of heaven coming, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter preaches that message at Pentecost. So the day of the Lord really has already begun. We're just waiting for the drumbeat to stop until he pierces the clouds and comes through. So there is a now. It's already here. It's already inaugurated because Christ has come, but it's also not yet because it's not been fully realized. We're still in the fallen plane of sin. But because we're in that in-between state, not purgatory, but saved, air, already there, and yet not quite yet, there should be something in us that says, come quickly. Yes, for relief, I think some in part, but more because of what we're delivered to, not just from. Christ. Christ. The King of the kingdom. Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What would you do if you were convinced that Jesus was standing right here, right now, and commanded you, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Far more intimidating than ever walking up to Nolan Ryan at a restaurant or whoever your intimidating figure may be. What would you do? What will you do? Because he is here and he commands you and his words in the scriptures is no less. They are no less divine than if he were standing right here speaking to you these words. That's why it's called the foolishness of preaching. It is crazy that a guy that has fallen, that, that can teeter on disqualification from standing in this place on any given moment, but by God's grace can say words that are perfect, not sermons that are perfect, but preach and teach and expose to you the words that are perfect that can change lives. That's crazy. But it shows the power of God unto salvation through the word preached. What will you do? Because he is here and he is still commanding, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look, just like he came to the land of the Gentiles to be light, believer, you were once darkness. Do you live as a child of light? You were once darkness. Do you live as a child of light? Ephesians 5, 7 through 10 says, Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Do you get that? It's not just morality. It includes it. You should seek to be morally good. But you know what? It also seeks to figure out, how do I please the Lord? There's a desire. There's a pursuit. Does that mark you? If you claim to be a child of light, or are you wanting to keep your deeds in the darkness? Friend, you need to listen and discern your own state. Because if you are loving the darkness more than light, you may not be a child of light. Look, there is no shades of gray, places to hide. It's darkness, it's light, it's stark. And in that stark difference, there must be evidence. Not just in morally good keeping, but in a pursuit of what pleases you, my Christ. Matthew 5.14, we'll see this as he 
as he begins to come out of this, and, and this is where I think one of the examples is of him explaining this message. He just simply says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So not just individually, but corporately. Church, you are light. Light is not just being busy here with church programs. And you know what? It's also not just being busy doing missional things. You can find your church busy program inside and outside of the walls. Are you living holy and distinct lives in home in front of your children, at work, in front of your coworkers, out there in the world? And that does demand both the living rightly and the speaking rightly of the gospel. Simply enough, are you living as a light on a hill? Unbeliever, look, this means that you are not in morally neutral territory. This means that you are darkness. If Christ came for those in darkness, then if you have not trusted in Christ alone, you have to admit that you are darkness. You need to pray that God would open your eyes to see that your sin is a deadly disease and you are already condemned to death. You're not in a neutral place waiting for the judgment in the sense of judging, weighing whether or not you're okay enough. If you have not trusted in Christ, you're already on death row. Maybe you came here wanting to hear a better message, but honestly, I can't think of a better message than to say, but you know what? Your cancer can be healed and removed this morning. You can be set free. And even though, what if you even do have physical cancer? I don't know how many of you have had full body scans lately. I haven't. For all we know, we, many of us have something. I promise you that we all have something that's going to kill us right now inside of our bodies. Kind of the nature of it. But for those that are children of light, we look to that kingdom. But those who are not must admit that they are in darkness and they have sin. Listen to what Paul says. Here's how he describes the commission that he was given from Jesus in Acts chapter 26, 16 through 18. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen. Which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Friend, if you don't know Christ this morning, you need to understand that you will not, you will not desire a savior for heaven unless you realize that you already are condemned to hell. You'll want something less than that. You'll want maybe a life coach or someone to kind of give you some good input or maybe just kind of a mentor, uh, a good socially redemptive example, but not a savior. You have to come to a place of realizing your darkness and your sin and your death to cry out and say, Jesus, you're the only one who can save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. He will save you. John one twenty nine says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb, of the God, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Christ. So repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ has come. He's come to save sinners like us, to adopt us and make us his own. But you know what? He will come again. And when he comes again, it's not to deal with sin. In fact, Hebrews 9.27 and 28 says just that. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, 
having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's appointed for man to once to die and then the judgment. So, until that day, if you're in Christ, you're the light of the world because he is the light of the world in you, then you have hope and long to see him and in the meantime will be light on the hill for the lost. But if you don't know Christ, when he comes, your opportunity for him to have dealt with your sin is over because then he's going to deal with it from the standpoint of judge, no longer a savior. And he will judge you rightly as an unbeliever, as one who doesn't believe that Christ alone saves. What will you do today with that statement, that command? It's no question. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our God, we come before you now and we ask you to make plain to us what obedience looks like for each one of us right now. As believers, we should live in a constant state of repentance, not because we need to be saved all the time, but because being saved, we do not want sin to hinder the fellowship that we have with our sweet Savior. So, Lord, help us to know what it is we must repent of today, knowing that whether it was last night or this week, we should not be dabbling in deeds of darkness because you've made us children of light. And because you made us children of light, we're not bound to those things. So, Lord, there can be freedom today. May there be repentance by believers. And, Lord, for those who are not believers, I pray that you would cause some to repent today of being in darkness, of trusting in the kingdoms of men, trying to build their own kingdom. Forsake those things. Turn to you and say, Jesus, I want you. I want you to save me. Forgive me. I can't know God apart from you forgiving me of my sin. I trust that you have died for my sin on the cross. I trust and believe that you're alive and you're resurrected and so you're powerful and mighty to save even me. God, bring some more to yourself today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.